week's Adam Schefter podcast, we're focused on new beginnings. And we begin with the new Bengals head coach, Zach Taylor, who takes over the Cincinnati head coaching job at the age of 35. We'll also sit down to talk with Andre Snellings, the ESPN NBA fantasy basketball writer, which is my new obsession, fantasy basketball, and we'll take your Ask Adam questions. And as we sat down to record this podcast on Monday, we were greeted with the news that the Browns were interested in signing Kareem Hunt. And literally, as we were trying to confirm that they were the team that was about to sign him or interested in signing him, the Browns sent out a memo that said, the Browns have signed Kareem Hunt. So literally, as we're sitting down to record with Andre Snellings and trying to confirm the news that the Browns are going to go ahead and sign Kareem Hunt, the Browns themselves confirmed the news. Though we would have preferred that they waited a little bit for ESPN to get out the news. It didn't happen that way. And so the Browns are the team that gives Kareem Hunt the chance. Really, they take on the controversy and the potential PR headache that exists with signing a player who was captured on video pushing and shoving a woman last year in, of all places, Cleveland. But the Browns felt like there was a low-risk investment to make here, signing Hunt to a one-year contract. And by signing him to a one-year contract, they now control his rights for at least the next two seasons. Because after the season, Hunt becomes a restricted free agent. And the Browns can tender him if they want. And then if they want after that, if Hunt plays well enough and basically saves his NFL career and his livelihood, they always could use their franchise tag on him. So basically, by signing Hunt to a one-year contract, they ensure the option of controlling Hunt's rights for seasons to come. And John Dorsey, the Browns GM, is the same GM who drafted Hunt in Kansas City, the same GM who looked into his background back then. They know many of the troubles that Hunt has had and has had to overcome. Many of his family members have had problems with the law, are incarcerated as we speak, but the Browns want to give him the help that they feel like he deserves. And Hunt has been trying to help himself, undergoing anger management classes and alcohol counseling since the Chiefs released him in late November. And so the Browns now are busy taking a flyer with the news that broke Monday just as we were about to tape with Andre Snellings. And you'll get to hear that interview with Andre Snellings coming up here in a short time. But first, we're going to sit down with the new head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, whose team will be going up against Kareem Hunt's team for seasons to come in the AFC North. It's a new time in the North, lots of change. And at the forefront of that change in Cincinnati is the man sitting atop the coaching depth chart, Zach Taylor. Zach. What's going on, Adam? Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, Zach, this has been quite a whirlwind. Have you ever had a three-week stretch in your life where you go on to play or coach in a Super Bowl, get named the head coach of the Bengals, have to put together a staff while you're getting ready for the combine and adjusting to everything new that is in your life right now? I think it's safe to say that this is a, a first for me. You know, it has been a whirlwind experience, but I'm surrounded by a lot of good people that were in L.A. and that are here in Cincinnati uh, to help me through the process. And so, certainly been exciting. There's a lot of work ahead. I'm just taking it one task at a time and, and getting through the day that way. Do you bother going to sleep at all, Zach, with all that there is to be done? That is hard. You know, it's usually long hours, and I think on Sunday night, I, I went to bed at 7 o'clock, what was that, two days ago, 
I uh, watched a little bit of that football game that was on TV. I laid in bed at 7. I woke up at 8.45 p.m., and I, I was afraid that it was 8.45 a.m., but I wow. slept through the whole night. And um, In reality, I just slept for about an hour and a half, so I got a good night's sleep, and now I'm back at it for the rest of the week. But uh, I do know it is good to try to slow yourself down a little bit and catch up on sleep. and um, So that, I've been trying my best. What is the biggest challenge when you arrive in Cincinnati and look to basically put your imprint on that organization? Well, number one is building your staff. you got to make sure it's, it's the right people in the building that have our culture and our mission in mind and have the players' best interests in mind and that are going to be great teachers, great communicators, and like I said, outside-the-box thinkers. And so I know that we're the last team to make a hire. I know that the combine and free agencies right around the corner but number one, we want to make sure that we have the right people in the building, and we don't want to make any mistakes in that regard. So uh, we're being patient through that process, and hopefully it wraps up sooner rather than later. Uh, but but that's, been, that's been the number one priority for us as we get started here. And how much have you had a chance to sit down and watch tape and film of the Bengals roster, the personnel that you inherit? Um, not as much as I would have liked so far, but I do, you know, nightly that's kind of how I end my night, throughout my morning is, Try to try to filter through some of these games and get to know our players because again, that's the number one priority is understanding who's on our roster and um, we got to evaluate that regard. Start to build relationships with these guys, so that's been a priority. Um, now that things have slowed down a little bit, you know, I can get done a little bit more in that regard that I want to. Zach, I got to ask you: when you were interviewing for the Bengals job, the word around the league at that point in time was that this was the place that you and your wife, Sarah, really wanted to wind up. Now, I know that in 2016, you were the University of Cincinnati offensive coordinator. You spent some time in the city. You were familiar with it. But what was it about Cincinnati that drew you and your wife? Because a lot of times we hear a player say, oh, I wanted to play here, or a coach say, I wanted to coach here, when, in fact, you really wanted to be back in Cincinnati. Why was that? The people, you know, the Midwestern values. I, I grew up in Oklahoma. She, she went to high school in Green Bay. You know, she was a little bit of a coach at Nomad's daughter. Um, so we just felt like we connected with the people here at the University of Cincinnati. Didn't have much interaction with the Bengals organization, um, but just knew the people that were in the neighborhoods, the people we saw at the grocery store. We just really felt a connection there. And I felt the same way in my first interview when I, when I met with the Brown family and the Blackburns and Dick Tobin, um, that they fit that mold of the people that we had grown accustomed to in the short time that we were here. They were the types of people that, that we always felt we were closest to at all of the stops that we've had. And so, you know, for us, we place a high priority on the people that we're going to be around and um, that we work with, you know, in order to get this thing done the right way. And so that was that went a long ways for me and for my wife. You know, it's important that my family's happy. And so um, I'm happy that it's all worked out for us. You brought up your wife, Sarah, who is, for those who don't know, the daughter of the former Packers head coach, Mike Sherman. What is the thing that you've learned from your father-in-law? Well, I've learned a lot. It's, tr- it's difficult to pinpoint one thing. You know, the advice that he gives me often is just to be yourself. Don't try to be the coach that you think people expect you to be. Just be true to yourself. And, and uh, it's gotten me this far, and it'll continue to carry you on the way. Um, just seeing, you know, the standards that he set for his coaching staff and his players, the discipline that he's always had in his programs. You know, and, and he's always trusted me. You know, I've always... I've always felt an obligation as when your father-in-law hires you as a young GA at Texas A&M, hmm. that the perception is, well, well, he just got hired because he's family. And so you've always felt that there were some expectations you needed to exceed in order to gain everybody's trust. And the same token, once you try to exceed those expectations, 
you know, you, you gain the trust because um, he knows that he knows I'm not going to go anywhere and I've got his best interest in mind and I want to see him succeed. So um, with that trust became a little bit more responsibility that helps you accelerate your know, coaching path a little bit more than maybe you would have done otherwise. And um, I know people always have this perception of uh, coaches hiring their kids and, and families and all that, but um, oftentimes it works out the reverse. You know, you, you get um, guys that are well, that want to work harder because they want to prove themselves and they want to earn that trust and they want to continue to grow quickly as a coach. And that has been my experience with Mike Sherman. That's what happened with you there. So that's what you've learned from your father-in-law, Mike Sherman. What about what you've learned from two other men that you just left from the organization you left with, Sean McVay and Wade Phillips? What did you learn from them? Well, Sean, the way that he treated everybody in the building, you know, he had a vision for every person, um, you know, and, and you always felt valued. You always felt that your opinion mattered. And so he was able to get the most out of his coaching staff because of the way that he interacted with them and the players on a daily basis. And with Wade, Wade has a wealth of experience. And at the same time, he can relate to the player. He's got more Twitter swag than anybody on our staff <laughs> over there, you know. So uh, Wade, Wade has just found a way to connect, you know, over the course of his career with the players and, and so when you see a coach that's demanding of his players, he has sound scheme, but he's found a way to connect and get the most out of those guys. Um, that, that combination from uh, Sean and Wade was, was something that was really fun to watch and really valuable to that organization. You know, we bring up Sean, and he became the youngest coach ever to coach in a Super Bowl. And I think that he removed the stigma from hiring a young head coach. You are now 35 years old. What does it say about the league giving young coaches the chance to be head men in their organizations? Well, you know, it's, I can only speak for myself. You know, I can speak a little bit for Sean, but, um, you know, we work our tails off and, and we have a good feel for the trends that are going around the league. Um, we have a good understanding of, of what the players go through. You know, this is a new generation of players. Technology has really influenced these guys and, and the way that they think and the way that they act. And so, it's important to understand where they're coming from, not necessarily to to uh, act like them, you know, but to understand what they go through and where technology is taking this game and meetings and everything that comes with it. And so I think, I know that's been helpful for me. I know that's been helpful for Sean. Yeah. I can't speak for anybody young or old otherwise, but I know that that has really helped us connect and get the most out of these players. You talk about it being a new generation of players, Zach. And in 2007, you went undrafted, and you signed with Tampa and were cut that preseason. What is your lingering memory from your summer with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers when you failed to make the roster? Gruden coaching us up in those quarterback meetings, you know, and, and uh, the way that he he made these plays come to life and the way that he presented it, very similar to what I saw from Sean these last two years. You know, that he engages the players. He makes it fun for them. Uh, he wanted guys to enjoy walking in the door every single day. And I saw that in Tampa in my booth sent there. I saw how to be a professional. First of all, I was a young undrafted rookie. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, so you got a chance to see some guys that were truly professionals, took care of their bodies. And um, this was a job for them. It was not college anymore. It wasn't, you don't sleep through meetings. You don't do any of that, that junk that guys used to do. So it was my first taste of the professionalism of the league. Hmm my first taste of a coach who could uh, bring things to life and, and make the meetings fun and entertaining, um, all the while getting the most value out of them, getting the most out of their players. So it was a good experience for me. It was a brief experience, Adam. I was not there long. I don't know that I took a rep, but uh, <laughs> it was it was good that I got to say I was in a – I actually think I got – to be quite honest, I, I got cut packing my bag for training camp. I was so excited. <laughs> 
I had just taken engagement pictures with my wife. Here I am, babe. I'm going to Tampa. I'm going to, you know, I'll probably start by the end of the season, you know, and, and uh, next thing you know, I'm getting a call from, from one of the scouts that, uh, hey, we've released it. Can you send in your playbook? I was literally zipping my bag to go to my plane. Wow. And, you know, the, the harsh reality that, that, that my, my NFL career was coming to an end before it even started, and that's exactly how it went, played out. Life comes at you fast, and now you'll have to deliver some of those same messages this summer, and perhaps it'll give you a unique perspective as you sit down to tell these young men that some of the dreams that they had will not come to fruition, I guess. You're right, and you know I've dealt with that in, in position meeting rooms before where I always preferred to have those conversations with the guys that I had built relationships with and grown close with, and, and uh, they're not easy conversations to have, but as long as there's clear and honest and open communication about it and you're honest as you coach them, you're consistent with how you coach them, then at the end of the day, sometimes hard decisions have to be made. and It's not fun, but it's just the way that this thing goes. Zach, I don't know how much time you've had a chance to look around your division, but the AFC North seems to be in a bit of transition. We have the Browns signing Kareem Hunt. We have the Steelers maybe moving on from Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell. We have the Baltimore Ravens turning it over from Joe Flacco to Lamar Jackson. What's your assessment of where the Bengals sit in relation to the rest of the AFC North. Well, I, I don't I don't feel it's fair to make that assessment yet because we still have a long way to go to to get this thing the way we want it. Um, you know, we'll get a chance this offseason to start looking at those teams in the division. Uh, but it's an exciting division. You know, there's there's some young talent, there's some veteran talent in here. So, um, you know, it'll be it'll be a challenge for us. There's a lot of hard work ahead, but. Um, it'll certainly be some fun battles going forward. I know that there's there's plenty of talent on those rosters and good coaches. So I look forward to, to slowing down a little bit and getting a chance to study what they're doing. Hey, Zach, I want to thank you very much for the time today. Get back to the whirlwind of activity, putting together a staff, getting together your plans for the upcoming free agent period, and really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks for having me. All right, Andre, here we are, headed into the All-Star break. A little bit of NBA action left this week. And I have to tell you that NBA fantasy truly has become my hobby. I know some guys play golf. Some people like to play poker. Some people like to garden. Some people like to collect cars. Some people like to collect baseball cards. My hobby is NBA fantasy. And you are the guru there. Oh, and yeah. I thank you for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it was my hobby, too. That's actually how I, it, I, I became the, what you call me, the guru? Yes. Um, you know, it, it, it was a hobby, and I played it to the exclusivity of anything else. And uh, the next thing you know, I, I kind of learned enough about it to, to start telling other people. So what were you doing that you left what you were doing to become this NBA fantasy expert? <laughs> well, yes. Um, This time, about a year ago, I was a... Uh, a full-time biomedical engineer. I was a wow. neural electrophysiologist. Um, that means that I would record and, and stimulate in the brain to uh, try to figure out what's going on with different maladies. And how does somebody go from being that to this? <laughs> well, a few things. You know, um, when when I went to grad school at uh, the University of Michigan, I don't know if you've heard of it. Y- yes. Um, you know, I, I went for biomedical engineering. That's That's been my training. But um, when I got there, I still had a little bit of athletic eligibility left. Um, so sports was always my secondary passion. And when I ran out of, of eligibility, um, I kind of had a hole there. And uh, like, like we mentioned before, fantasy basketball became my hobby. And I really got into it. 
And uh, I got into it enough that I started writing about it, and I was pretty good at the writing, and it just kind of grew from there. Do you still dabble in your former career? Will you ever go back to that former career? Does anything about your former career still interest and entice you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was my life's work, right? So, um, yeah, it, it, it obviously I've still got passion for it. Um, you know, uh, I still keep my. My, my fingers in, 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 you know, the, the journals and, and, and the research to kind of keep up with, with, with what's going on. Um, and there are places where these two worlds intersect, right? Like, um, I was a, a neurophysiologist and I mean, you work in the NFL, obviously, you know, CTE concussion, um, that, that's, that's a huge research area and, and it's an area that, you know, as I pay attention to, um, it, I could keep my feet a little bit in both worlds. So um, who knows what the future holds, but um, I, I'll, I'll always be a biomedical engineer till I die, just like I'll always be a, a sports writer till I die. As you were being a neural engineer, a biomedical engineer, were you dabbling in fantasy basketball during your day job? Like as you're trying to figure <laughs> out something brilliant, something much more meaningful than fantasy basketball, you're you're playing around with fantasy basketball? Well, every so often, you know, you have to be able to – the whole point of a pastime is to take your mind off of what you're doing. Yeah. So at the time, I couldn't tell my bosses um, that, that I might be looking at my, my basketball team during the break. But, um, but yeah, I mean, um, basketball, fantasy football, um, I would certainly uh, – That's at night was when I did most of my writing. But, I mean, there, there may have been a time or two when you could uh, catch me at my desk uh, – if, if, if you snuck up on me and I might have a sports window open. Now, I'm sure there are not a lot of neural engineers out there who aspire to be a fantasy football or basketball writer. But what would you say to somebody doing some sort of day job mm-hmm. that aspires to do something in another field, particularly the sports field? Yeah, I mean, there, there's this old expression that um, you find the job that you want and you start doing it. Uh, before anybody hires you, you start doing it. So um, when I first started giving fantasy advice, um, uh, it was essentially for free. You know, I did it so I could have access to some websites and, and things of that nature. But um, I did it, I practiced it, and I got good at it. And so if someone wants to get involved in something like this without quitting their day job, that's the first thing I would do is is, is start writing. Start writing every day. Um, you know, if you can find a, a company that will let you write, that's great. Before I came here, I had started my own MBA blog and – uh, that's actually where the attention came from that brought me here. So, um, so yeah, if, if you want to be a writer, you have to write. Okay, so we've just completed basically the first half of the NBA season. Yes. What has most surprised you from a fantasy perspective? From a fantasy perspective, I think... Before you answer, you want mine, Andre? Sure, because I, I have one, but yeah, go ahead. Mine has been the sudden impact of Luka Doncic. Okay. In Dallas. He has become, I think, a guy that has worked his way into potentially the first round of the draft next year. He's a triple-double waiting to happen. He, in a way, I think, is almost a refined Bill Simmons. <laughs> ben, he's a refined Ben Simmons. <laughs> I was going to say, the Simmons. sports guy is very, uh, he's very happy to hear that. Ben Simmons. <laughs> ben Simmons. Yeah. And he's just a huge fancy player. I mean, great player. Right. And I never liked when the Hawks traded him on draft night. And I think he's asserted himself since then. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting with Doncic in particular. Um, or, or maybe I should say the rookies in particular. Doncic is probably, he's going to win the rookie of the year, right? Mm-hmm. But in the points based leagues, he's still behind DeAndre Ayton. 
you know, so um Doncic in a roto league, yes, his his ability to touch every category is huge, but in the points based league, you know, Aiton is still producing more volume. So um I think maybe the, the the larger point is just how impactful these young players are having right off the bat. Like already, you know, as a rookie in real life, they're they're as you said, approaching high round fantasy status uh for year two. Well, Aiton was the number one pick. The number two pick was Marvin Bagley, who had a monster night Sunday night against Phoenix. And you know who just traded for Marvin Bagley in the ESPN 12-team <laughs> world? That would be me, Andre. I, just uh, traded, I traded Sabonis and Williams from New Orleans for Bagley. What do you think of that trade? I think that, that, that uh, you, you might have made a, a really good move at a really good time. Um, I wrote a rookie article on uh, ESPN Fantasy a couple weeks ago, and it was really it was looking at last year's rookies and how people always say rookies get better as the year goes along, but I wanted to quantify it. So I really looked at, at the top 10 or 15 rookies over the years, and it, it, the the pattern was very similar. They would do good the first couple months and then dip a little bit in January and February and then finish the year really strong. So getting in on a Marvin Bagley or a Jaron Jackson Jr., um, I think this is the perfect time for it. I got two rookies on my team. I got Marvin Bagley and I've got Kevin Huerta from Atlanta. Ah, yes. You know what he is? He is a small, mini, growing Clay Thompson. Yeah, I can see that. that's a, that's a great analogy, and he's really under the radar. Um, he was he was starting to heat up, I would say December and January, and then he got hurt, and he was out for a little while, and it kind of reset you know reset him for a little bit. But now he's right back to twenty five points w- w- without really breaking a sweat. I've rostered him for over a week now. I'm not going to release him, and I'm somebody that has made more moves in my league than anybody because that guy, what I've noticed so far, he's very efficient. Mm-hmm. Doesn't miss a lot of shots, makes his free throws, gets some rebounds, some assists, some steal, does a little bit of every threes, everything. Mm-hmm. Yep, and um, you know, going back to your question before about uh, things that surprise me, one of them is just how ubiquitous the three-point shot has become in the NBA this year. Mm-hmm. And it makes guys like Huerta into really valuable commodities, guys that can make the three but still keep your efficiency and not hurt you in other areas. So tell me now, as we head into the second half of the season, what are a few fantasy basketball storylines that we should be watching out for? Yes. Um, one is the out come of all of these trades that just happened last yep. week. This is one of the, the busiest trade deadlines I've ever seen. And um, as I was working on my article that was going out today, it's taken me an extra hour because I had to change the teams next to, it felt like, half of the NBA. So um, I'm going to be really watching players like Dennis Smith Jr., who I thought would break out this year, and then he was struggling in Dallas. Now he's on a new team with the Knicks, and he had back-to-back huge games um, uh, this weekend. Can he become consistent with that? Um, what happens with a guy like Tobias Harris? He was the man in L.A. He's not going to be on the ball like that anymore, but will he still be able to produce impact fantasy stats for Philadelphia? So um, the, the the trades and the, and then all of the, the guys that got traded and then got cut and are now free agents, where are they going to go and will they be able to either match their old fantasy impact at their new locations or will – they're going to a new location, impact someone on those teams and, and lower their value. So hmm. there, there's just, there's, there's so much food for, for free agency, um, in, in fantasy basketball, uh, in, in trades until your own trade deadline based on what happened in the real trade deadline last week. Is there a guy out there that you would recommend having on your roster if he's 
gettable, claimable off the wire to have for a second half of this fancy basketball season? Hmm. Yes, but that that's really going to depend on your league, right? You know, who, uh, how how deep your league, how shallow your league is. Yep. But um, I mentioned Dennis Smith Jr. In my top 150 rankings, um, he had fallen out of them as, as of the, the, the that Knicks trade. He was hmm. well into the 180s. And so in a lot of leagues, he was available. Um, and he's on the Knicks, which is supposed to be a glamour team, but they're not, or at least they haven't yep. been. So therefore, some people still haven't paid attention to him. I would really like to to have him on my teams because I feel like he's going to do well in the second half. Not a great field goal percentage shooter. No, he's not. But again, everything that, that, that we say about fantasy, we have to kind of preface with that there's two main types of ways to play. There's roto and there's points. Mm-hmm. And so um, when it comes to the rankings and the, the, the rest of the year rankings that I, I do, I do the points based. So that's kind of my default mindset. So on a league based on volume, um, a guy like Dennis Smith, and uh, you mentioned earlier the other half of the Luka Doncic trade. Um, Trey Young is yeah. someone who's quietly been stepping it up volume wise, and 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 so people that really got sick of him because he he had his rookie shooting slump. Um, either he might be available cheap for trade, or he might even be on uh, some waiver wires. I had Trey Young on my roster at one point earlier this year. I traded Trey Young for Willie Cauley Stein, who I then turned into Sabonis, who I then turned into. Uh, Marvin Bagley. Marvin Bagley. Yes. So basically, Trey Young became Marvin Bagley for me. Yeah. And you know what? Listening to you talk about your teams and listening to that sequence of events, um, if I didn't already know you, I would say that you're someone that really likes to make trades. Oh, Is that yeah. a fair assessment? Oh, listen. On my team this year, I have traded for Lowry Markinen, mm-hmm. Nurkic, Jokic. Mm-hmm. De'Aaron Fox, Marvin Bagley. I have made more trades than anybody in my league. I've made more waiver claims, or not waiver claims, but pickups than any team. In the ESPN World League, oh, I've made 99 moves this year. <laughs> I love it. Actually, one person, uh, Matthew Berry, has made more than me. He's made 110. <laughs> I've heard of that guy. Yeah, he's the only one that has made more, but nobody's made more trades. Nobody's made more moves other than Matthew and I, yeah, not even close. Not even close. So let me ask you a question, sight unseen. Um, what, where, where do you rank in your league? I am in first place in one of the divisions. Mm-hmm. I have an eighty-nine and sixty-two and two record. I have a seven-game lead on Mike Cambrari, our producer, in the West Division of the NBA Worm League. And right now, I am poised to make the playoffs. I'm the defending uh, NBA champ. Would love to try to repeat. Uh, my team is Jamal Murray. J.J. Redick, LeBron James, Markinen, Nurkic, Huerta, Levert, Jokic, Zubak, Gobert, Engels, Fox, Bagley, and Dinwiddie INR. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and a couple of you guys you mentioned just came back, right? Right. Um, I had Levert on IR, stashing him, waiting for him all year. Mm-hmm. And see, so even before you, you went through the detail or told me that you were in, in, in first in your division, yeah. that doesn't remotely surprise me because of the fact that you're so active. Like, that's there's almost a direct correlation between activity and how good someone is, especially at fantasy basketball. Um, when it comes to trades, the the person that makes the most trades in the league is almost always one of the contenders. Because when two teams make a trade, no matter which side, you say, oh, that guy got the better end mm-hmm. of it. Both teams tend to get better with respect to everybody else. 
And so if you're always the guy that's making the trade, that means that more than likely your team is the one getting better more often than everyone else's is. And that can be nothing but good. Yeah, well, I, I, I love draft deals and all that stuff like that. So, in fact, I picked up uh, Zoo back the other day. I'm just curious, would you recommend down the stretch Ivaka Zubak or Ivan Rob? That's a great question. I would say Ivaka Zubak because I feel like he's got more upside and less competition, um, if that makes sense. Like yeah. Ivan Rob, he still has to deal with Valanciunas at some point. Um, and Valanciunas is only, what, 26 years old, and he's still got another year left on his contract. So they've, they've let Rab continue to start, but I feel like there's a vulture there waiting for yeah. him. Whereas the, the, the Clippers don't have another pure center of that caliber, in my opinion. All right, this week, Andre, I don't know if you know, I am returning to the NBA sidelines. I'm getting to do the oh, yeah. Rockets at Timberwolves. Very excited to be going to Minnesota in February. There are a few, <laughs> a few destinations and few things in life that bring people more excitement than going to Minnesota uh, in mid-February. What is your assessment of what James Harden is doing this year so far? I think what James Harden's doing is absolutely amazing. And it's interesting to me um, as as I kind of get the pulse of how he's been responded to um, in the media. Yeah. A lot of people push back that, well, the way he's playing doesn't scale up to a championship. And I don't really know that I agree with that for the simple fact that he showed last year that he doesn't have to play this way. So the fact that he's able to transition on the fly due to injuries and had this amazing run to me just says he's playing at a really high level. And like, yes, stylistically, the, the Rockets hope he doesn't have to continue that because that won't lead to anything. But the fact that he can do it and he has that in his back pocket, um, is, is one of the, the, the bigger storylines of the season to me. Well, Andre, Neural Engineering's loss is ESPN Fantasy Basketball's gain. We welcome you to ESPN. We're happy to have you at ESPN. And I thank you for the time that you gave the Adam Schefter podcast today. Thank you very much for that, Andre. Thanks for having me. It was a ball. My pleasure. <laughs> have me back. <laughs> Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. Ask Adam. We should ask Adam. And we always welcome your Ask Adam questions. Another edition of Ask Adam on this week's Adam Schefter podcast. And Josh, what did you round up this week? <laughs> Rounded up some good voicemails, Adam. But let me tell you, the phone lines were burning up really? in the Great Lakes region. A lot of calls mm. from the Midwest. As you could uh, I know what that absolutely means. anticipate. I know what that means. What does it mean, Adam? Lots of Kareem Hunt questions. Ah, uh, yes. And the first one, we of course talked about Kareem Hunt to lead off the podcast, but one Cleveland Browns fan wants to take it to the next level. Let's see where this one goes. Hey, how you doing, Adam? Uh, Darren Ashley, longtime fan, Cleveland, Ohio. Just wanted to ask, with the Browns' new signing of Kareem Hunt, does that make us the best team in the AFC? Well, thanks for the question, Darren. I appreciate it. Let's keep in mind that Hunt's going to have a lengthy suspension coming. And I would guess that when the NFL hands it down, that it's going to be 10, 12 games, somewhere in that vicinity. So the chances are he's not even going to be a factor for a good part of the 2019 season. Saying that, the Browns are on the upswing. They have accumulated a lot of good young talent. It's a team that is on the rise. I'm not ready to say they're the best team in the AFC, not when... Tom Brady and Bill Belichick still reside in that conference. We never, ever say that anybody's ever better than the Patriots as long as Brady and Belichick are around. 
But the Browns are headed in the right direction. And if you're a Cleveland Browns fan, Darren, that's all you can ask at this point in time. They're headed in the right direction, Adam. And, and no disrespect, but they were 7-9 and nine last year. I mean, not only the Patriots, but what about the Chiefs? What about even the Colts, the Texans, the Chargers? What about and, their own division? Steelers, Ravens? The Ste- yeah, and I think a lot of people, especially with the Steelers, might think that, that Pittsburgh is on the downswing and Cleveland's on, on the upswing. I'll give you that, but... Man, I don't care if the Browns had Jim Brown in the backfield, much less Kareem Hunt. I don't think they're the best team in the AFC. I mean, where, do you think they're a playoff team next year, Adam? I think they have a real chance to go to the playoffs. Look, it changes up every year, Josh, and I would just say that I like the Browns' chances of going. I'm not ready to say they're going, but I like their chances of going, which in February, that's all you could ask. Absolutely. And uh, so we'll keep the AFC North theme going, talk some Browns. Talked to Zach Taylor earlier in the show, and we have a voicemail wondering about Taylor's new team, the Bengals. Hey, Adam, this is Matt from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, check and see what you think about that Murray kid uh, going to uh, Cincinnati. Uh, I think it'd be kind of cool, mm-hmm. him and Mayfield going after each other for about 10 years, both Oklahoma kids. Uh, I think Cincinnati needs to do something uh, off the grid. Uh, it may have to move up, but uh, I think that'd be kind of cool. Matt, I like the suggestion. It's very interesting. The question would be, will he even be around when the Bengals pick? And again, I think that's going to be one of the great questions of this draft is where Kyler Murray goes, who decides to gamble on him. But he's electric, and it makes a lot of sense for the Bengals, right? If you are in a division with Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield and Ben Roethlisberger, who's going to play with your figure for at least a couple more years, uh, you might need a jolt. And Andy Dalton's been a good quarterback for a long period of time, but they have not been able to take the next leap. And now they have a new coach in there. And a new coach might want his own quarterback. So we're going to see how that one works out. Uh, That Bengals suggestion, Matt, I like that. I think that's very interesting, and I think that that would be a team to watch in April. Yeah, it's not crazy. And the Bengals right now on the 11th overall pick. Yeah. And it's certainly not out of the question that, that Murray would be there. I mean, I've seen him... Uh, linked not only to the Bengals, but also to the Dolphins, who, as of right now, are slotted uh, at 13th overall. So they'd be behind the Bengals. So theoretically, he'd be there for the taking for Cincinnati at number 11. And, of course, if you want more uh, draft knowledge, you can always download and subscribe to the First Draft podcast with Mel Kuyper Jr. and Todd McShay. How's that for a plug, Adam? Yeah, you there like you that? go, Josh. There you go. Good there one. you go. Let's keep it in the AFC North. I mentioned we were getting a bunch of calls from the Midwest. Here's one wants to know about the Steelers. Hey, Adam. It's Brandon Cavalier. My question is, is there any possibility, any hope at all, that the Steelers can keep Le'Veon and A.B. and somehow we get it going and keep the team together and keep the hopes alive for seven? What are the odds of both of them staying in Pittsburgh? Well, Brandon, I don't think the odds of both staying are very good, but I don't think it's out of the question either. Not likely, but not out of the question. And keep in mind, on Le'Veon Bell, the Steelers may wind up using their transition tag on him. And if they put the transition tag on Le'Veon Bell, that means that they would have the chance to match any offer sheet that he signed with another team. And the real question will be, how much is another team willing to pay him? Last year, the Steelers were willing to pay him, it was somewhere around $70 million. It was like a $15 million a year average. Do we think that some team is going to offer him more than $15 million after this past year or less? Uh, I would say less. And so if the Steelers have the right to match an offer sheet that turns out to be less 
than what they were offering him, maybe they go ahead and do sign Le'Veon Bell. That would certainly be interesting, particularly if you're going to move on from Antonio Brown. Maybe you want to keep Le'Veon Bell. Now, again, some of these domestic issues with Antonio Brown really cloud the picture and make it murkier than ever before. I think that they want to trade him. I think he wants to be traded. The question is, what is another team willing to give up for him right now with some of these questions hanging in the air? So I I think that they're more apt to move on from Brown. I think they're likely to move on from Bell. Both back, no. One of them back, potentially, yeah. Enough of the AFC North, Adam. I'm sick of it. Let's go to the NFC North with a question about the Minnesota Vikings. Hey, Adam, this is Joel. I'm from Bonita Springs, and I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan. Curious on two things with the addition of Gary Kubiak to the Vikings coaching staff. Do you believe that Mike Zimmer is indeed on the hot seat and that hire could be potentially there in case they need to make a coaching change midseason? Second question would be with Kirk Cousins' performance during primetime games and in big spots being lackluster, do you believe that there's a level of concern now given the contract and link we're tied to him in Minnesota. Look forward to hearing from you. Uh, great questions, Joel. Appreciate them. Thank you for them. And I would say this to you. Number one, knowing Gary Kubiak for a awful long time, uh, since 1990, he does not want to be a head coach again. He has no interest in being a head coach again. So I think every coach, short of Bill Belichick or Sean McVay, is always on the hot seat in the NFL. So if the Vikings had a terrible season, would Mike Zimmer be on the hot seat? Yes, do I think that they want Gary Kubiak to take over? Maybe so, but Gary Kubiak does not want to be a head coach. He's had some health issues in the past. He likes to run an offense. He does not want the burden of the whole organization. That's not something that interests him at this time in his life. Could they turn to somebody else? Yeah, always, I guess. But I would not expect Gary Kubiak to be the interim head coach. Now watch him take over in November if the Vikings are failing, right? The second part of that would be Kirk Cousins. Uh, are they concerned, the struggles? Again, I'm going to go back to Gary Kubiak. Gary Kubiak, Mike Shanahan, very close. Mike Shanahan thinks the world of Kirk Cousins, thinks he's Drew Brees 2.0, okay? So if Mike thinks that, I can promise you that Gary believes in that at the very least. And I think that one of the reasons you go out and hire Gary is for his belief in Kirk Cousins. I think his belief matches that of what the Vikings organization had a year ago when they paid Kirk Cousins all the guaranteed money that they did. So I think that they believe that they've got the right guy to work with Kirk Cousins. He'll be better in his second year with Minnesota, and then that will prevent them from having to make a coaching change and ask Gary Kubiak to become the interim head coach. Hope I answered all your questions there, Joel. That was well done, Adam. He answered two. You gave him more than two answers. Well done. Thank you, Josh. So we've gotten questions from Ohio, Pennsylvania, Minnesota. Let's just hit on one more Great Lakes state before we get out of here. Good morning, Adam. My name is Omar Rodriguez from Houston, Texas. My question for you is, what is your best memory of your time at the University of Michigan? (laughs) Omar, I appreciate that. I would say that Really, everything was, but the thing that stands out was in my senior year in 1989, Michigan basketball team basically had to replace Bill Frieder, its head coach, on the eve of the NCAA tournament. And Michigan went in the first round and won its first two games, and my college buddies and I drove from Ann Arbor to Lexington for the second round for the Sweet 16 when they beat North Carolina on Friday night and Virginia on Sunday afternoon to get to the Final Four. 
and me and my buddies got online at the athletic office that Monday morning, waited for Final Four tickets, which were much easier to get back then, much more affordable back then. And we were able to buy Final Four tickets. I think it cost us like $100 for the for the weekend. I mean, something very, very modest compared to what it would be today. And we all got economy flights to Seattle, and we flew to Seattle through Minnesota that weekend. I'll never forget it. And we went to the Saturday game in which there were 33 lead changes in the Michigan-Illinois game. Great game where Michigan beat an Illinois team that featured Kendall Gill and Lowell Hamilton and Kenny Battle and all sorts of great guard, Nick Anderson. And then on Monday night, of course, Michigan won the national championship, beating Seton Hall. Um, Ramil Robinson made the free throws. And the fact that your college could win the national championship in basketball in the final month that you're at school, <sighs> it doesn't get much better than that, I gotta say that. I mean, getting married and having kids, that, that obviously stands out on life's milestones, but but winning a national championship in your senior year uh, as a diehard sports fan is also right there. And as much fun as I've ever had on back-to-back weekends in my entire life. A lot of basketball talk on today's show. A lot of basketball like talk today, Josh. Like and it. now I'm about to go hop on a flight here to go to Minnesota to do the Rockets and Timberwolves. More keep, basketball. There you go. There you go. And remind people where they can see that again. Wednesday night, ESPN, 815 Eastern. Mark Jones on the call. Doris Burke is the analyst. And some moron on the NBA sidelines <laughs> doing the player interviews. Adam Schefter doing the sideline reporting. A lot of basketball. You're going to Minnesota. We're keeping the Great Lakes theme alive. And yes, I know that last call was from Texas, but it was about Michigan. So work with me there. I think I think we kept the Great Lakes theme going. We span we span the globe today, Josh. We, did, we span we, the globe. We did span the globe, and we will keep our uh, Ask Adam voicemail inbox open. For next week's show, if you want to get a question in, please just remember to uh, keep it relatively brief. Remember to uh, state your name, too, so you get credit. And remember to call 860-506-5779. So thank you, listeners, for all those great Ask Adam questions. Truly appreciate that. Keep them coming each and every week. And special thanks to Andre Snellings, the ESPN NBA fantasy basketball expert, somebody I like to turn to in my free time because that is my true hobby these days. NBA fantasy basketball and a special thanks to the new Bengals head coach Zach Taylor the son-in-law of the former Green Bay Packers head coach Mike Sherman a colleague of Sean McVay's somebody who once learned under John Gruden and you can see why Zach Taylor has all the ingredients in place to be a standout in Cincinnati and thank you for tuning into another Adam Schefter podcast we'll be back in this space again next week please come check it out thanks again everybody